Okay, good morning to you all. Um, it's good to see you here on Labor Day weekend. This is, it, it assures yourself of your election if you're here today. Yeah, so it's, good, it's good to be here. <laughs> let's, um, let's begin with prayer, shall we? Father, we're grateful that in your kindness and your mercy, you stooped low to come and to redeem us and your Son. And we thank you for the good word that we've heard already this morning, and I pray that you will continue to lift our hearts up to you. And this morning, as we press in uh, to the subject matter of our hour together, we ask, God, that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear and to understand and for the teacher to be reasonably clear. And Lord, if any of those things happen, we know it will be because of your kindness and your grace, so we thank you in advance. And bless those in our church who are on the road this weekend. Give them safety as they travel and as they return. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I looked at my wife this morning. I said, this, this Sunday school lesson today, Dean's class, has the potential to be a disaster. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm speaking out of my comfort zone today significantly um, and just to give you an idea of what we're doing, this is a one-off deal. Uh, so just to give you an idea of what we're doing, um, I, I uh, teach for a living. I'm on a nine-month contract on my teaching. You know that teachers often will tell you the three best reasons for going into teaching are June, July, and August. That's not, <laughs> it's not true, but it's, it's a nice perk, right? And uh, this summer, we, we made the decision that uh, we, had a, we added a child to our family. That's the last of our progeny, hopefully. Um, but we added, So we didn't go anywhere, which provided the opportunity to do some reading. That was actually kind of good. And I heard a lot of buzz about this new novel that came out uh, by Donna Tartt called The Goldfinch. Just to kind of get a sense of our audience today, and this, this is way out of my comfort zone, what we're about to hop into, just to give you a heads up. Um, I'm a Bible guy, and I tend to do Bible-y things, um, so the literary critical stuff is not, not in my ballywick. But any, anyway, how many of you have read The Goldfinch? Some of you have, okay, all right. Um, I brought the book here today, actually spilled coffee on it this morning already. Um, I have it here. Um, just to say a little bit about the reading of fiction, uh, how many of you do this regularly? And it's no shame if you don't. I mean, you get into heaven still without it. But I'm curious. Okay, fiction, yeah. Um, I, I, I came to fiction reading in my own personal story a little bit later in life. Um, I can remember enjoying, um, I was forced to read a lot in junior high and high school. I can remember enjoying a novel, actually, in high school. I think it was John Knowles, a separate piece, actually, or something like that. I can remember that. Um, but I, I, but reading novels as a kind of regular discipline has come later um, for me. So for some of you, the whole literary critical and sensitivity to fiction and writing, you are good at analyzing that. I'm, I'm very conscious that Jim is here this morning. Um, this, this is this is something that you're good at. For me. Um, I'm not really able to bring a book like The Goldfinch under that kind of critical scrutiny. I read fiction. I don't know why you read it. I read fiction because it brings me to the complex world of other people's lives. Um, it helps me see the world beyond my own provincial proclivities. I realize more than I know how embedded I am in my own shoes and the way in which I see. 
And so I, I've, and I've also grown, and this is something I'm just beginning to sort of press into, but I've also grown to appreciate more and more the capacity of our language, right? The capacity of language for description, for exploration, uh, to press beyond the surface account of the mundane character of our lives. I don't know how you feel about them. I love reading fiction that allows me to see normal processes of life from a different vantage point and a more profound angle. Uh, so my feelings really are, are intuitive and not easily accounted for as really any experiential encounter with the arts is. And we're going to talk more about that this morning. Now, the Goldfinch, just a few things real quickly. Uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for literary fiction this year. Um, for certain of the uh, literary critical intelligentsia in our country, uh, Donna Tartt's winning of the Pulitzer Prize is a certain sign that America has given up its standards for good literature. Um, I, I've read some of these reviews. I read the review in the New York Review of Books by a lady named Francine Prose. Um, uh, it, it was it, basically she said, "Have we forgotten what good writing is anymore?" Um, the Paris Review, the editor of the Paris Review, said it's a shame that even the New York Times can't call a popular book crap. That was an actual <laughs> quote um, that was in there. Uh, you know, so I, I don't know. Um, the, the, the book has been an enormous success, and I, I imagine certain kind of the intelligentsia don't like that. Um, but it's, uh, I, I think a screenplay, by, by the way, is, about, is already in the works. Bad news, right? I, potentially. But simply for me, it's a, it, it was a good yarn as far as plot goes. But the book, as it progresses, becomes more than that. And I'd like to talk about that some this morning. The plot of the book, I'm very sensitive to not giving any spoilers away here, so I'm, I'm going to be careful to walk a fine line. But the plot, the plot is as incredulous as it is disturbing. Um, the unbelievable aspects of the story, and you'll have to read it for yourself to kind of get a sense of what just seems over the top. This is what some people don't like about it. But the unbelievable aspects of the story, to my mind, only serve its mythical quality. And the story becomes an icon. Uh, it becomes a representation of 21st century humanity, uh, trying to come to terms with its existence and with ultimate questions. Um, what is the reason for even living? The world in this book is torn. Families are broken. Uh, mediocrity replaces passion. Love is lust. And a reason for living actually becomes quite hard to give an account for. As an aside, and it's kind of interesting how providentially certain, I don't know if this happens to you, but certain reading things come together. As an aside, I'm reading right now um, a book that was recommended to me by a colleague named Why Teach by Mark Edmondson out of UVA. Um, Edmondson laments the students that he's had over the past 15 years or so. I mean, he says these students tend to be marked by um, indifference toward greatness or genius, it's his terms. Think, um, for you movie people out there, the dude in The Big Lebowski, right? Too much enthusiasm for any subject matter is met with skepticism, a facile, uninformed skepticism. So a professor up, I mean, you think about the, the great loss of Robin Williams that we've had, right, over the, I mean, how that's captured our, our imagination as a culture. And you think about Dead Poet Society and the, 
I mean, I was moved by that as a teenager, thinking the power of teaching, right. the power of actually being able to teach and communicate, and not just communicate facts, but actually have a live encounter between people, right? Um, well, you know, that, that um, is harder these days. Because that kind of enthusiasm that you saw coming from a character like Williams can often be met today with a, with a kind of skeptical reaction like, what are you so excited about? And if you're really that excited about it, then it's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical toward it. Edmondson concludes in this book, he said, it's too bad that the idea of genius has been denigrated so far because it actually offers a live alternative to the demoralizing culture of hip in which most students are mired. What happens, he wonders, if our most intelligent students never learn to strive to overcome what they are? I say that um, to, to one of my sons regularly. Son, if you don't love learning, right, then you will be who you are in 20 years, right? And it's nice to know you, right? Love learning. Um, so, uh, back to the Goldfinch. The Goldfinch, as a, as a book, has the main character, Theo Decker. Um, we follow him from a fateful day in New York City when he was only 13 years old. Um, a series of random and uncontrollable events led him to a collision course with a moment that forever changes his life. Uh, the moment has to do with his mother, um, a dying elderly man, and a 16th century painting called The Goldfinch by the Dutch painter Carol Fabricius. So this is the painting. If you want to see it, you can look it up. The story ends with Theo in his late 20s. And in more ways than Theo even knows at the moment, the events of that particular day shape him for the rest of his life. Now, I can't be sure of this, and I want to be careful not to read too much in. But I'm assuming that Theo's name, Theo Decker, has embedded within it a kind of clue for you and for me as readers to the unspoken plots of this story that hover underneath the surface of the literary character of it. Unspoken, that is, really toward the end of the novel. The goldfinch is a theodicy. It's an account that's given for some concept of the divine and how one has warrant or justification for some concept of the divine in light of the suffering and the evils of our world. The goldfinch plunges you headlong through story and fiction into facing that big question. We never see Theo in church. We never see him even, at least to my mind, contemplating going to church. But life's ultimate matters are faced down in this haunting and beautiful tale about a boy, a painting, and a circle of people who make up the complex tapestry of his life. So without giving away the plot, um, I'd like to read a few blocks from the book this morning and, and riff on it, really. Um, the book edges toward the philosophical at the end, of the, uh, end, toward the end, and I'd like to draw from this reservoir if you're, if you're okay with that. Um, so here are the three areas I'd, li I'd like to focus on. Number one, providence or fate, question mark. Number two, the self, who are we? And number three, beauty uh, and the yearning for more. If we don't get to all of those, you'll, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it over coffee. All right. So the first one, providence or fate. There's a moment in the book where Theo is talking with his friend Boris, and they have a discussion about the suffering of life. And Theo says, I actually see it as a kind of bitter irony. 
And his friend Boris says, well, why do you have to play bitter irony over God's involvement in providential affairs? And that's the kind of thing that's raised. The bitter irony and the reality of providence meet one another here, and people are trying to sort through that. I'd like to read you this quote, and um, this isn't really happy. So I'm... uh, Here we go. And I'm hoping there's some larger truth, Theo is saying, about suffering here, or at least my understanding of it. Although I've come to realize that the only truths that matter to me are the ones I don't and can't understand. What's mysterious, ambiguous, inexplicable. What doesn't fit into a story. What doesn't have a story. Glint of brightness. He's talking now about the the painting. Glint of brightness on a barely there chain. Patch of sunlight on a yellow wall. The loneliness that separates every living creature from every other living creature. Sorrow inseparable from joy. And increasingly, he says, I find myself fixing on that refusal to pull back Because I don't care what anyone says or how often or winningly they say it, no one will ever, ever be able to persuade me that life is some awesome, rewarding treat. Because the truth is, life is a catastrophe. And yet, he goes on to say, to know as well that despite all of this, as cruelly as the game seems to be stacked sometimes, that it's possible to play it with a certain kind of joy. Um, I was taken by that. Because here you have someone at the end of some really catastrophic events of his own life reflecting on the fact that he's done with a syrupy, sentimental account of life. Or, we'll put it in our terms in a Christian context, a syrupy, sentimental account of what it means to be followers of Jesus. The every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before kind of account. And he's saying, you can say what you want to, but to my account, life is a, is a travesty. It's interesting um, to, to compare and contrast a text like that with Gregory of Nazianzus, a 4th century theologian from the East who wrote a poem in the 4th century called A Prayer to Christ. And this is the essence of the poem. If it were not for you, O Christ, this life would be a crime. We're born, we grow, we die just like the plants of the field. If it were not for you, O Christ, this life would be a crime. This is the big question, isn't it? About life and how life relates to things that are ultimate in in their end. Um, a, a book that's come out, and it's a kind of heavy tome um, by Charles Taylor called A Secular Age, has described the secular age with this particular turn of phrase. He calls it the imminent frame. What is secularization? What does it mean to be in a secular context? It's to live within an imminent frame that is a material world that does not work within any con- concept or constraint of the transcendent or the supernatural. It's imminent unto itself. And here's the hard thing, isn't it? That the reality is even within that imminent frame of our existence, we cannot take away from the fact that catastrophe still occurs and people still try to give some sort of account for it. And as I think about this from the standpoint of a Christian theological reflection, 
That tells me and you that a robust commitment to the doctrine of providence, that God is involved in the creaturely affairs of life in all of its complexity and in all of its difficulty, does not inoculate you or me from that reality. Doesn't inoculate you or me from the catastrophic sides of life. And there's enough gray hair in here, and it doesn't need to be gray hair, but there's enough gray hair in here to know that that's true. That, 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 that that's a reality. So we don't work within this fatalistic notion of reality. We work within the notion of providence. But even that doesn't necessarily remove us from the difficulty of coming to terms with it. Standing in a cemetery. Standing in a hospital room. Having to wrestle with these particular matters. The goldfinch, I think, presents that in a way that I, that I found rather, that I found rather um, interesting. Julian Barnes um, said, I don't believe in God, but I sure miss Him. And I think that, in some sense, measures up the, some of the religious instinct of, and again, I'm speaking in gross generalities here, but, it's, but it speaks to some of the instincts within our age today. And I feel that with our character in the goldfinch. I don't really believe in God, but I really, really miss, miss him. The second thing I wanted to look at here in relation to this is the question about the self. I'm going to read this passage to you. A great sorrow says Theo at the end, and one that I'm only beginning to understand. We don't get to choose our own hearts. We can't make ourselves want what's good for us or what's good for other people. We don't get to choose the people that we are. Because isn't it drilled into us constantly from childhood on an unquestioned platitude in the culture, from William Blake to Lady Gaga, from Rousseau to Rumi to Tosca to Mr. Rogers. It's a curiously uniform message, accepted from high to low. When in doubt, what to do? How do we know what's right for us? Every shrink, every career counselor, every Disney princess knows the answer. Be yourself. Follow your heart. Only here's what I really, really want someone to explain to me. What if one happens to be possessed of a heart that can't be trusted? What if the heart, for its own unfathomable reasons, leads one willfully and in a cloud of unspeakable radiance away from health, domesticity, civic responsibility, and strong social connections, and all the blandly held common virtues, and instead straight towards a beautiful flair for ruin, self-emulation, and danger. If your deepest self is singing and coaxing you straight toward the bonfire, is it better to turn away, stop your ears with wax, ignore all the perverse glory your heart is screaming at you, Set yourself on the course that will lead you dutifully toward the norm, reasonable hours and regular medical checkups, stable relationships and steady career advancement. The New York Times and brunch on Sunday, all with the promise of being somehow a better person. It's not about outward appearances, but inward significance. A grandeur in the world, but not of the world. A grandeur that the world doesn't understand. The first glimpse of pure otherness in whose presence you bloom out and out and out. Um, that's good stuff, right? 
I mean, don't you agree with that? I mean, you find this sort of thing that goes on, this, this be yourself or, 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 the, or another kind of the therapeutic idea within, and again, I sound very sort of negative this morning. I'm going to get happy here in a moment. Now, this sort of therapeutic culture in which, you know, you, you need to forgive yourself first. You know, be, be, forgive yourself. Step toward yourself. Step and, 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 and embrace your true humanity. And the truth of it is we know our true humanity, don't we? I mean, this is Reformation Theology 101. But the heart is incurably turned in on itself. I mean, that's what a doctrine, I think, of total depravity is working with. Not necessarily that people are as bad as they can be. That's not necessarily what's going on with total depravity. What it means is that from head to toe, our emotion, our thinking, our ability to will, all of it, is curved, it's depravare, it's, it's turned in and such a way, it's skewed, it's crooked, all of it, from beginning to end. And when we look into the recesses of our own hearts, we know that that's true. Isn't it something that the, that the advice that's given, turn to yourself, embrace yourself, be yourself, is actually at the core of what the history of the Christian tradition has defined as sin? The turning in on the self. Or in one theologian's terms, Eberhard Jungel's his name, sin is the making ourselves our own neighbors. Turning ourselves into our own neighbors. That turning in on the self. It's astounding, isn't it? And here is someone who says, you know what? I see the little guy behind the curtain. I realize the wizard's not really there. The self who I really would like to be is not the person who I really am. And we tend to project ourselves onto that. I had a funny conversation with Craig Smalley um, recently. I think he was on the phone or something. But we were talking about how we view ourselves. Um, you know, even like for, for me, for example, in relationship to my, you know, some people are in shape and some people are in a shape. You know, you have to sort of think through that. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I look, you know, it's just a nature to look in and go, you know, it's Magnum P.I. Right? It's not, it's not, not bad. Um, self self perception is always self or tends toward self deception, doesn't it? When we know that our hearts, left to themselves, are incurably sick, and that Mister Rogers, at the end of the day, really is is just a placebo um, that has no real ameliorative effect for you and for me with our ultimate condition. And that's why, and I don't really all know what's going on here underneath the surface, but that's why when Theo says, and then I realize that myself is only understood in relation to the other as it opens out and out and out. And that's right. That's how we come to know our true selves. Now I'm using this and springboarding, and maybe that bothers some of you, and I can get why it would. But I'm going to springboard here in a second for, for a moment to talk a little bit about a theological anthropology, who we are as people. And a Christian theology emphasizes that who we are, your true self, is a self that's identified by your union with Jesus. You're in Christ. I'm in Him. So if I want to raise questions about what is truly human, or who is, what is humanity really about, or who is the humanizing human, the answer is look hard and long at Jesus of Nazareth. Do you want to know what it means to be human? Do you know what humanity actualized to its fullest potential actually is? Look long and hard at Jesus. And ourselves, ourselves, are located in Him. 
I mean, it's a fascinating thing to think about this. And I've said it in other contexts, but I'll say it again here because it's important to make the connection. It's fascinating, isn't it, to think that someday, the final day, when the resurrection of the dead occurs, we will get to meet our true selves, who we really are. And and some of you wives and husbands are excited about that, right? I look forward to really meeting you someday, right? That's going to be a good day, right? I mean, that's our true self. Our true self is understood in relationship to the other, in relationship to our triune God who by His Son and through the Spirit has stooped low to draw us back unto ourselves to redeem humanity and to make all things new. I'm not saying that the goldfinch has the solution. I don't believe that it does. But it certainly puts its finger on the problem of coming to terms with what selfhood is and how we understand ourselves in relationship to our hearts and what we really want to be. The final thing. These are kind of random. But the final thing is um, a beauty and and the yearning for more. Uh, And I realize our time is really going. So let me read this to you. I grew up in a home, uh, my my parents are actually here this morning, I grew up in a home with a dad who was really into art, and I was really a Philistine, to be honest with you, I mean, I just didn't really get into it, and then um, I started dating a girl who then became my wife, who was an art education major, so, you know, the the stakes were raised, my interest was peaked, you know, at that point, (laughs) Um, so I've grown in my, my, uh, against my Philistine ways, but this is a conversation between Theo and a man who becomes in many ways a surrogate father named Hobie. Well, for time's sake, I'll stop here. He laughed. What's to say, this is the, uh, Hobie speaking, great paintings. People flock to see them. They draw crowds. They are reproduced endlessly on coffee mugs and mouse pads and anything you like. And I count myself in the following. You can have a lifetime of perfectly sincere museum going where you traipse around enjoying everything and then go out and have some lunch. But if a painting really works down in your heart and changes the way you see and think and feel, you don't think, oh, I love this picture because it's universal. I love this painting because it speaks to all mankind. That's not the reason anyone loves a piece of art. It's a secret whisper from an alleyway. Psst, you. Hey, kid. Yes, you. Fingertip gliding over the faded photo. The the conservator's touch. A touch without touching. A communion wafer's space between the surface and his forefinger. An individual heart shock. Your dream. Vermeer's dream. You see one painting, I see another. The art books put it at another remove still. The lady buying the greeting card at the museum gift shop sees something else entire. And that's not even to mention the people separated from us by time. 400 years before us, 400 years after we're gone. It'll never strike anybody the same way. And the great majority of people, it'll never strike in any deep way at all. But a really great painting is fluid enough to work its way into the mind and heart through all kinds of different angles in ways that are unique and very particular. Yours, yours, I was painted for you. And oh, I don't know, stop me if I'm rambling. Passing over his forehead, 
Wealthy himself used to talk about faithful objects. And then he goes on to say, you, Theo says, you sound like my dad. And he says, well, let's put it another way. Who was it that said coincidence was just God's way of remaining anonymous? So this notion about art, and again, this is an area that you know, some of you have, so, have given so much more depth of thought to than I have. But isn't it something, this notion about a piece of artwork leaning toward you and saying, hey, you. I mean, the Christian tradition, um, and really, just to press beyond that, the intellectual history of the Western world has understood that any encounter with art, that any encounter with, whether it's representational art or music or fiction, or good writing, the fact that someone can take a noun and a verb and throw some modifiers in there and actually begin to describe the world. I mean, the fact when that occurs, and we have an experience of that artistic other, and that the experience of it is more than we have the ability to articulate what actually happened. Have you had that frustrating moment before? I mean, you go to the opera, or you go to, I mean, I don't want to be sort of just highbrow here. You go and hear Shovels and Rope, you know, some band that I'm kind of like now. I mean, whoever it is, and you walk away and someone says, um, what, 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 what was your evening like? It was wonderful. Well, give me a rational account why. Well, you know, it's hard to start to do that, isn't it? And the inability, the Christian tradition, I think at its best, has said the inability to give an irrational account fully, for the experience of beauty in and of itself demands that the encounter with the beautiful is an encounter with the transcendent. It's an encounter with the other. This, this was the strange um, providence that I had this summer. And I wasn't planning on this, but it just happened. You know, it's kind of a front porch moment. I was reading The Goldfinch and really kind of getting into it, enjoying it, and I was also at the same time reading a book by Robert Steiner, I mean, uh, Charles Steiner, called um, Real Presences, which I tried to read that about a decade ago and just just couldn't get through it. Um, But basically, Steiner, who is a bona fide genius, makes the argument that really within the Western world, any engagement with art assumed some sort of transcendental reality behind the fact. Um, and that we're losing that in our current world. You know, so, I, by the way, it was interesting to compare that um, with another book at the time uh, by, by the philosopher Nietzsche, who said in The Twilight of the Idols, the only reason we still believe in God is because we believe in grammar. Right. I mean, so this, this notion that we can put things together and describe our world relates to the fact that there's, there, there's a belief in the transcendent and the other. And who can give an account for that? Our inability to do so, our inability to quantify that, speaks to the fact that we engage something mysterious in that. Now, I should just go and say, and this is my Reformed instincts, and just laying it out on the table, that, I don't believe that's salvific, right? Um, I, I don't believe that you know, seeing a Rembrandt painting and being moved to tears over it by hours of thought and reflection now means you believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I, I, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that there's built within the fabric of our world this notion that an encounter with beauty is an encounter with the transcendent, with the other. And some of you have had that experience. I mean, when I was in high school and junior high, 
you know, I've said this to some of you before, I, I fell in love with opera, right? Um, and I like to, you know, tell people I played baseball and football too, just kind of round it out, but um, I, 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 I fell in love with opera. I just remember sitting in my bedroom on a Saturday and putting opera records on and hearing, you know, Pavarotti kill her one more time in Pagliacci, right? I mean, it was, you know, it was just powerful stuff. And if you were to ask me to give a sense of what is it about this encounter with music that I don't know if I could say it. I mean, and again, I don't want to get too far into the trees here, but there was a philosopher at the end of the 20th century, um, his name is Schopenhauer, who basically argues that our lives are caught in the maelstrom of a desire for something. We really want something. Um, and then the frustration that we live with and growing bored with when we get it. And we live in that. We either really, really want it, and we taste it, we want it so badly, and we live with that sorrow, or we live with the sorrow that now we have it, and it's not all that fun anymore. And you know what Schopenhauer said? But there's one place where that reality that we cannot get away from, there's one place where that is transcended, and that's in the encounter with music. Music. So something, isn't it? I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm still giving thought to this, but it's something, isn't it, to think about this engagement with beauty is an engagement with the hope for something more. The fact that there's a whisper here that this material world that we live in, not to play the material over the spiritual, but this material world that we live in, what we see with our eyes and experience with our senses cannot be everything. It can't be the, sum, the total picture. This is the last quote I wanted to read from you, and then, and then I'll be done. He says, As much as I'd like to believe that there's a truth beyond illusion, I've come to believe that there's no truth beyond illusion. Because between reality on the one hand and the point where the mind strikes reality, there's a middle zone, a rainbow edge, where beauty comes into being where two different surfaces mingle and blur to provide what life does not. And this is the space where all art exists and all magic. And I would argue as well, all love. That middle space between reality itself, a classic problem for philosophers, but reality itself and the way in which my mind perceives and engages reality, that space, wherever it is, that space is beautiful, art, love. Now, what I think what's interesting about that to me is, is again, it taps into something that the, the Christian tradition, I believe, has affirmed. And that is the encounter with art. Art is never art for art's sake. It's never an end unto itself. But it brings you into something that's transcendent and other. As David Bentley Hart says, beauty is a startling reminder, even for people that are sunk in the superstition of materialism, that those who see reality purely in mechanistic terms do not see the wor real world at all, but only a shadow. So when you have those moments, I don't know what they are for you. Our aesthetic tastes are different. So I don't want this to be a kind of just a highbrow kind of thing. Our aesthetic tastes are different. But whenever you have an encounter with something that's beautiful, um, which, by the way, 
Giving an account for why something is beautiful is really hard to do. Some of you look at a Thomas Kincaid painting and you want to barf, right? And some of you look at a Kincaid painting like, I wouldn't mind one of those in my house, right? It, it, it's, a, it's a hard thing. Sort of, that, that was a touchy one. I shouldn't have done that one. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this, this, but whenever, whatever it is, right, that encounter that whispers to you that there's, there's more is something, I think, that brings us into the very mystery and reality of God as a creator. His world is beautiful. And He creates His world beautifully to draw us to Himself and to give us the hope that our experiences in this life, catastrophic as they are, are not necessarily the final word. That really the final word will be beauty. It will be love. You know what's interesting about that? I, I, I heard this. Either I read this or heard it communicated to me, but Robert Jensen, he's a current theologian, uh, uh, American theologian, was giving a talk on the end times, eschatology, and, and, they, and, and he said um, in the conference, instead of concluding my paper, I want you to hear a piece of music. Because to me, that's the best way for us to think about the future world is with music. So I think that's wonderful. When your heart's t- stirred, right, and you can't really give an account for why it is. That's a whispering to you from the, our Creator God that this world is not our final stopping place and that music, our life in Him, actually is. Now, Lord, thank You um, for Your world. It's good. Thank You for the tradition of the Reformers that we value so much around here at Advent who overcame for us in stark ways this distinction between the material and the spiritual world. This world is good, Lord. You've made it. And even today, Lord, as we go home and enjoy lunch together as families, as we sit on the couch and laugh, as we chase children around or grandchildren around or whatever it is, let these material moments in our lives, Lord, that bring such joy be a whisper from Your own heart that we yearn for a place unmarred by sin where all will be art, music, beauty, and love. And we ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.